if you don't find your own motivation to play in the Ryder Cup, there's something wrong with you. You don't belong playing there. Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 134. My guest on this episode is Justin Leonard. If you've been following along on the social media channels that I have set up for the Back of the Range, you probably saw that I teased this episode with a trivia question. And this trivia question is something that I did not realize until I started doing my research for this episode. I knew that Justin won an individual national championship at Texas back in the 90s. I knew that he won a U.S. Amateur. Immediately, I started thinking about that great amateur season that Ryan Moore had in 2004 when he won the Western and the USAM and the USAM Pub Links and, you know, a truckload of other tournaments in that summer. Well, Justin Leonard won the Western and the Southern Amateur in 1992. Then he won them both again in 93. Then he was on a victorious Walker Cup team. That got me thinking, what else is on this guy's resume? He's won a major, the 97 Open at Troon, won the players in 98. He's on a winning Ryder Cup team twice. And when you put all those accomplishments together on the board, a lot of top names gradually fall off the list until you're left with four. The only four players in history that have won an NCAA Individual National Championship a U.S. Amateur, a Walker Cup, a Major Championship, a Players' Championship, and a Ryder Cup are Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods, Bill Mickelson, and Justin Leonard. And here's the best part. When I told him that he was part of the answer to this golf trivia question, he had no idea. He was humble, he was surprised, and just honored to be in the company of three of the best golfers of all time. When you think of Justin Leonard, you think of the putt. And we talked about the putt a little bit. But we also spoke about his family, his new TV career that he has embarked on. So while he's probably known more for sinking a 45-footer to clinch the 99 Ryder Cup at Brookline than anything else, and that's not bad, don't forget that Justin Leonard has checked off just about every single box imaginable. He's had a fascinating career, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Also, we started things off discussing a new company that Justin and his wife have formed. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes of this episode. Go check it out. It's called Tiny Tweaks. It's their own nutritional supplement company. Very cool stuff that they're doing, so go check that out in the show notes. I am rambling again, so let's get started. Justin, welcome to the back of the range. How are you? All is well. Thank you for asking. <laughs> well, I'm letting listeners know when we're recording these episodes. And um, just just because of everything changing in the world right now, and today it's April's, it, it's April, 7, yeah, it's April 17th. So um, you are out in, uh, in Aspen. Um, what are you doing to stay busy out there? Well, it's, we've got four kids and four dogs. And so the kids range from we've got a fourth graders, our youngest, to a sophomore in high school, and a couple in between. Um, they're you know they're doing their remote learning. They've they've got their command central or headquarters set up on our dining room table. Um, there's a couple of extension cords, a couple of uh, surge protectors that are you know providing. Uh, you know, ample charge to all their old devices that they've got to be on. Um, we're still able to to get out and, and hike. And I biked last week. Uh, I'm going to go skiing when we get done with this because we got about a foot of snow yesterday. Wow. Uh, maybe a little more up high. Um, we've been, um, my wife and I started a, a business about a year ago, we formed a company called Tiny Tweaks, and, and we just rolled out our first product in January. Uh, it's a fruits and greens powder. And so when when this, you know, stay at home, shelter in place started, uh, what, about five weeks ago, yeah. our kids our kids were on spring break. And so we put our kids to work 
um, because we, we canceled our spring break plans. Our girls, uh, Reese and Avery, who are freshmen, sophomore in high school, they took over kind of the social media stuff. There you go. Um, and then our our son, our, our oldest son, who's 13, Luke, he's into kind of photography, videography. So he's become our, you know, our in-house um, photographer. And, uh, and then Sky, our, our 10 year old now, he just turned 10 a couple days ago. Um, he, he basically just gives his approval or disapproval <laughs> on things. And he's, he's our prime primary consumer in the house. Okay. All right. So, um, you know, so we've, I mean, we've, we've stayed surprisingly busy. Um, you know, I, because Amanda, she's more involved in the research and everything with, with the company Tiny Tweaks. Um, you know, and, and for those that are interested, it's tinytweaks.com uh, where you can buy product. And, and it's not just about that. It's about just living a healthier lifestyle. Uh, it's something that, that we've always been, um, you know, pursuing, but even more so when we moved up here to Aspen about five years ago. And, uh, and so it, it's way more than just a drink powder. Um, and so that's been a fun process and that keeps us, uh, surprisingly busy these days. Well, and it sounds to me, I mean, now the truth's really coming out. I mean, it sounds like it's the whole purpose of having kids is for the free labor. So, I mean, that sounds, <laughs> I mean, was, that sounds like that was just, no, I'm just kidding, but well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, and, and we're definitely going to put the link to the, uh, to the company in the show notes of this episode and we'll, we'll post that out and, and get that out to everyone listening. Um, I'm just curious, you know, best athlete in the Leonard household, are you even close to the top of that list? I mean, I have seen some things that you and your kids and your wife have done up there in the mountains that are, at least for us golfers, borderline insane. What's uh, who's the best at, who's the best athlete in the Leonard household right now? Oh, it's a toss up, and, and I'm not in the top five. Wow. Um, okay. So between yeah. Between Amanda, um, she's done two half Ironmans, and she's she's talking about doing a full a full Ironman. Um, I'm just like I'm kind of her training partner, uh-huh. um, and really more for the bike. I you know swimming comes not very natural to me. Um, I'm good for a four or five mile run, but on days when she's going longer, um, I skip those days and come up with something else. Uh, Luke, our, our 13 year old, uh, he's done a couple short, like kind of kids triathlons. Um, he and I did this, this, I mean, it's a race, but it was more just something for us to complete. It was called the power of two where we, we skin up, uh, Aspen Highlands, uh, which is a, you know, you're on lighter ski, lighter boots. You've got this skin on the bottom of your skis and you clip your toes in. So it's like a Nordic or a cross country looking motion, but okay. you can go uphill. That's what I'm going to do later today. But so we skinned up Aspen Highlands, uh, which is about 30 or about 4,000 feet vertical. Um, then ski down and you're skiing down like the steepest terrain, some of the steepest terrain in Colorado. Uh, and then another small skin. And then we ski down this basically it's a hike it's a switchback hiking path which was extremely interesting uh and not something i would recommend for anyone and then we skinned up the back side of aspen mountain and then skied down the front side and so the race it, it took us seven and a half hours i think we did we got 7500 we climbed 7500 feet vertical Um, now there's also a power of four where there's another group that starts in snow mass and kind of makes their way over to highlands. Um, and I'll just tell you the winners did the the power of four in like just over four hours. So we were definitely in the recreational league. Um, but you know, Luke, our 13 year old was like, he was out in front of me the whole time. Um, and so, uh, you know, you got Luke and then my girls are both in volleyball and tennis and soccer and, and Sky's a good golfer. So I, I don't think I'm in the top five as far as, um, you know, athletic 
uh, prowess in in the Leonard family. Well, that's a shame. You really should have done something with your golf career to maybe put yourself up at the top top of the list. I mean, really, what were you thinking? Um, uh, right. Wow. Uh, I feel almost like embarrassed that we're going to be just talking about a sport now where we chase a white ball around, but we're going to try, <laughs> I mean, we're going to try and do a little bit of that and just make it sound as important as possible. Um, <laughs> before we get to just a little bit about your career and just, I want to kind of get your thoughts also on the current state of the game, because you are doing uh, work for golf channel, work for NBC. And, you know, we, we just heard yesterday that, or a couple of days ago that the PGA tour, uh, is going to resume play, hopefully, uh, at Colonial in June. And then the first four golf events or first four events in the, in the schedule are going to be played without fans. That's this. That's the plan as of today, April 17th. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of the highlights of your career, Open Championship, Ryder Cups. But you're a veteran. You've played over 20 years in the PGA Tour. And, and everyone has been there where you make the cut on the number or you're – starting your Sunday final round and you're the first group out where there's just, there's not many fans, if any. And I'm just curious because you've, you've done it just like everyone else has in that situation. What's it like playing a PGA tour round when there's no fans? Cause that's something these guys are going to have to deal with that. Maybe they've never had to deal with before. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's going to be an adjustment for players. Um, I, I played, I played at the the tournament in DC. It was at Congressional a few years ago, and, and there was a big storm that moved through. I believe it was on Friday night. Tornadoes and lots yeah. of trees down, and lost power in a lot of areas. and And so we played Saturday's round, but without fans. and And no, not even spouses or family could come to the golf course. And it was really eerie that day because. There's down trees everywhere. All you could hear were the sound of chainsaws because right. they were trying to get things kind of squared away so that it would be safe for spectators to return on Sunday. And about the, I don't know, the third or fourth hole, I made about a 25-footer. And my instinct took over, and I put my hand up, you know, in the air, like, thank you, thank to the you. sound of nothing. <laughs> and... <laughs> I looked at my hand and I just thought, Oh my gosh, what an idiot. <laughs> and, um, and so those kind of instincts, you know, guys are going to have to to push through those things and, and it's going to be eerie, but th- th- they'll, you know, the guys play on different types of grasses, different conditions every week. Uh, you know, climate, the, how far the ball goes. It's just another adjustment that's going to have to be made. Um, it is going to be strange. I, I'm scheduled to be to work the second event, which is the RBC Heritage. Yeah. And uh, it's I think it's going to be strange also from a broadcaster's point of view, because, you know, a lot of times you you lay out after somebody makes a big putt or a big shot so that the crowd noise can speak to the moment and, and how how important it is. Yeah, and um, you we could have a guy make a putt on Sunday afternoon to tie for the lead or to take the lead, and there's just going to be crickets. Yeah, and so it's going to be different from from you know even the 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 audience at home, their perspective, our perspective as as broadcasters and analysts. Um, it's going to be something that we're all going to have to adjust to. It's going to be really interesting, too, seeing about interviews after rounds and hearing their perspectives. And also, how does how does the broadcast and how do the players try and, and forge a stronger connection with the fans at home? Because um, there's, you know, like you said, you can't get that feel from what the crowd on site and how they're reacting. So oh, you're, ab- you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, from the from the TV perspective, on any given week, there's probably a hundred to 150 people on the television crew. My my guess is that we're going to pare that down to, you know, a a much, maybe half of that, maybe even, um, you know, maybe as few as, as 40 or 50 people. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, if maybe we lose some of the bells and whistles, some of the shot tracer, or or it just doesn't happen as often because, all that technology, not only does it cost money, but it, but it's personnel that yeah. you've got to have to run it, to run those specific cameras 
to do things in the production truck to to overlay graphics and those kind of things. So it, it may be I wouldn't be surprised if it if it was more of a kind of a bare bones telecast from a technology standpoint. Um, but I think you're right. I think the there's opportunities to for the players to to maybe interact with the cameras more often uh, to try and you know give the sense. Certainly, some players some are just going to go about business as they always have. But right. I think there's opportunities there to you know make the telecast different and, and better in a lot of ways. You know, I was kind of going to save this for later, but since we're kind of on the topic and talking about TV and I think I've had conversations in the past, whether it be with caddies or whether it be with uh, other TV personalities where the PGA tour is while they are playing golf, it is entertainment. And I've thought about that comment and I haven't had the chance to really speak to a PGA tour player about it, but you know, you were on tour a couple of years before tiger came on, you won your major the same year as tiger won 1997 you know, golf really blows up, and it seems like now they're they're trying to figure out a way. How are they going to make the tour as entertaining as possible? I mean, can you just speak to how important it is to not just go out there and go about your business, but you need to be an entertainer? You're absolutely right, and I really I think I did a poor. Well, I don't think I know I did a poor job of that. Okay, uh, certainly early on in my career. I mean. For me, I, I was I took it very seriously, too seriously at times. Um, I don't think I interacted with the fans as as well uh, as I should have, as I wished I would have. Uh, that came later on in life for me, as you know, I, I came to my faith, I got married, I had kids, and I, I understood a bit more of of how special it is for parents to bring their kids out to a golf tournament and when you know when I was playing out there and I'm not making excuses I'm just trying to explain a mindset yeah um, we see it every day every week uh, but I think being a parent now I realize how special that is for someone and and unfortunately I didn't really learn that until later on in my career um, but I, I think it is something that this younger generation understands they connect with, with their fans and fans of the game through, you know, their different social media outlets and, and, and all those things. And, and um, I think there's a, a greater awareness of that uh, in these young players today. And that's why they're, they're so much, they're so easy to work with from a TV perspective Okay, um, because they understand that, that when I walk in the driving range on a Saturday morning, um, they're, you know, some of them, not all of them, but are like, we'll stop what they're doing and come talk and say, Hey, I've got this going on or that, or, you know, they're, they're willing to, I don't really ask questions. I just kind of listen, but, but they're willing to talk. And um, that's something that I didn't do early on in my career that I wish I had. You um, you started your career after this, your professional career after this remarkable amateur career. I mean, it's, I mean, I will put links up. I mean, people need to look and see, you know, what you did in your amateur career, which is absolutely incredible. I mean, back-to-back Western Ams and Southern Ams, and you got a U.S. Amateur in 92, and individual national championship with, with, uh, with Texas in 94. Uh, when you're coming out of, of college, I'm guessing you're just thinking that, I'm just going to explode. I'm, I'm asking because after all this amateur success, are you just thinking I'm just going to explode onto the tour and I'm just, I'm set. You didn't have to go to Q school. You had your sponsor invites that, that you didn't have to deal with that. So I'm just curious as one of the best amateurs of all time, what's your thought process heading on to the PGA tour? Well, I was, I was fortunate. I won the U S amateur 92. So 93, I played in, five or six professional events and three of them were majors. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I made the cut at the U S open. Uh, I missed the cut at the masters and at the open, um, but made the cut at the U S open. I made a couple other cuts. Uh, the Brian Nelson, I played well, um, you know, over at colonial, I played well. And so I got a sense of that. It was something that I could be successful, okay. uh, doing and, but I didn't really come out of college thinking, okay, I've got, you know, I've got the bull by the horns. 
I knew I need to go out and perform. And at that point, yeah, I, I, I got my, my agent at the time got sponsors exemptions lined up and in the, the, uh, the third event that I played, which is no longer played, but it was an event at Kings mill in Virginia. Um, I finished, I finished third that week and that, that plus a couple other good finishes helped me kind of lock up my card and having a great finish like that. So early, then I was able to get unlimited sponsors exemptions. So I right. think I played either 12 or 13 events that year in 94. Um, but then I went through a little period in September, October, where I didn't play very well. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, I may be going to Q school, uh, you know, those kind of things. And, and uh, the last event, that I was in was the Texas open. There was the tournament in Vegas was the following week. I didn't get a spot there. So it was an important week for me. I remember I play, I was playing with Bobby Watkins, uh, Lanny Watkins brother, and we had the same agent and this is on Sunday. And so I played a lot of practice rounds and things with Bobby and, and I start out, I think I bogeyed the first hole, maybe the first two holes. And Bobby knew that it was a big round for me that I needed a, a good finish. And, and uh, we're walking off the third tee, and he says, hey, you know, he called me Junior Pro. He said, hey, Junior Pro, <laughs> um, just, just, it's just you and I out here. We're just playing on a Tuesday, okay? Play like you're playing on a Tuesday. And that settled me down, and I played really well the rest of the day. And I finished 15th or something like that and, and was able to keep my card after the tournament in Vegas. So it was um, – it was – it was a lot of fun. It was great to be able to avoid going to Q school because sure. I, I hear about, you know, the pressure cooker that is. Um, so it, it was, it was really a fun year. I learned a lot from guys like Tom Kite, Davis Love and, and Bobby Watkins and, and Robert Wren, you know, these guys that um, some you've heard of, some you may not have, but, but they were all very helpful and instrumental in me helping to get comfortable that first year. Talk about your agent, you know, the, the modern pro these days talks about, you know, their team around them. And that's got to have an agent and a manager and a psychologist and a chef and publicist and all that stuff. And just to put it in perspective, how things have, how much things have changed about, you know, since 25 years ago, you have one of these great amateur careers and you get started. Who, who was on team Leonard when you were making your debut? I'm assuming there were some family members involved. Yeah. My, my mom and dad, um, I, my instructor, Randy Smith and, uh, my caddy was Steve Holka that first year who oh, wow. Tom yeah. Kite, Tom Kite had kind of helped me help set that up. And, uh, and then my agent, which was Vinnie Giles. And, and that was it. Um, and you know, my mom was kind of secretary travel agent, um, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing and figuring out where to stay and all that stuff. And, and so it was, um, it was a lot of fun, but you're right. Uh, guys kind of assemble these teams and they have, you know, multiple coaches and all that. And, and I, I think, you know, the important thing with all that is that ultimately it's, it's up to the player to decipher the information and, and kind of make it their own. We can get into that later, but um, I think it's, I'm not sure I could do the whole like team thing and multiple instructors and right. all that, because, you know, how do you, you got, you've only got a certain number of hours during the day, a certain number of hours to practice or at a tournament. And, and, um, you know, it's, it, it must be time management must be extremely important when you've got these large teams, like a few players do have. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Giles, he was your captain at 92 Eisenhower trophy. He had, uh, it was him and Jay Sigel and Alan Doyle, just the, the players that the captains that you've had over the years on all the teams, um, are, are absolutely incredible and i'm going to ask you about a couple of those captains later but you you're uh, you're starting your professional career and and you're one of the last guys to to get away from persimmon and you know you, like i said earlier you come on tour just a couple of years before tiger and i know the pro v1 made a huge impact in the year 2000 but you know equipment's changing and you know players are changing their fitness goals and and you know obviously distance is the big thing now i mean today's juniors and college players it's almost like they're being taught how to they're being taught about spin rates and launch angles before they're being taught how to hit a, you know, a cut seven iron. Um, how did you adapt to the distance boom throughout your career? I mean, I'm guessing it didn't hit really until maybe early or, you know, 
early 2000s, but once it did hit, it it was pretty much a reality you couldn't get away from or anyone can get away from. No, you're right. And I, I think early in my career, um, distance wasn't as great a factor. Right. Um, it, it's always been an advantage, but you're right. When, when the golf ball started to change, guys started going to solid core golf balls, um, you know, multi-layers. Um, and like you said, early 2000s, that's when it really started to push for distance and, and could kind of see it coming a little bit. Um, I still felt very comfortable on, on certain golf courses. And, and I usually tried to only play the courses where I felt like I had a good chance. Okay. Um, obviously you get to a major championship. Um, that's, you know, back 15 years ago, that was 7,500 yards. It's like, okay, this may not be set up for me, that kind of thing. But, um, still going to places like whistling straights and, and, you know, I would get to a golf course like that, that maybe I hadn't seen before. And I thought, you know what, this is a place I could play because, you know, the troubles may be pushed out a little bit further, um, those kind of things. And so, uh, but I, I tried to get a little bit longer. Um, I, I knew I was never, you know, I, Tiger can't change its, its stripes. And so I, I knew that I had to really just kind of focus on the things that I did well. Um, if I could pick up five or 10 yards here or there, uh, great. But, you know, really for me, it's about a good short game, making putts, putting the ball in play and, and minimizing my mistakes. And, and it is amazing though, how the game has changed. And you're absolutely right that, that junior golfers, golfers, high school, college golfers. I mean, I was captain of the, the junior U S president's cup team. And we went down Australia in December and the sophistication that these high school, I won't call them kids, but, but these schoolers have as far as the numbers and the technology and everything was fascinating. And some of the players, you know, you could see they were maybe missing a little bit of the nuances of, you know, knowing when it's time to, to maybe step on the gas a little bit, knowing when it's time to back off and hit it in the middle of the green. And so, um, especially playing a golf course like Royal Melbourne, the greens are very severe. They were very firm and fast. And so that was my, I figured that was kind of my job was to help these guys figure out how to play a very strategic golf course. And that was a lot of fun that week, but the, the way, the ability they have to hit the ball, um, not just miles, but, but, you know, control their wedges and all that. And they do a lot of that through technology. Um, that's how Dustin Johnson reached number one in the world was, was by using a launch monitor and dialing in his wedges and, and those kind of things. And so I think the guys that rely on it too much, um, will, will struggle at times. Right. Uh, I, I think there's a good balance for using the technology and there's other times when you just got to go out and play golf and figure out how to shoot a score on a day when you don't quite have everything that you want. It's just modern. It's the modern game, and it's just fascinating to watch and see how different players are adapting to it. But I, I that's why I wanted to ask you because you kind of were in, were already entrenched in this very successful career. It was, I mean, I think you won, I think you won every year from '97 to 2007, except for one or two years. So you have this very consistent career. But you see where things are going. I'm also looking at some of the things like you were right there in the middle of so many incredible things. You just mentioned. Uh, the playoff at Whistling Straits and the PGA. You're also, as as we joked about earlier, you're the you're the uh, forgotten man, so to speak, in the uh, in the Laurie uh, Vandeveld playoff at Carnoustie, and then you also top ten the '97 Masters when Tiger won his first when you were T seven. And um, I'm, you'll have to excuse me. I hate to bring it up, but you only lost by sixteen. But don't worry. So did <laughs> so did Davis Love, and so did. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're in great company. I think there are four guys at T7. All four were major champion winners. But you see this thing happen where Tiger bursts on and wins his first major. And I just have to ask, being there, what are some of the locker room conversations? Or maybe like a week or two later, you're catching a flight with another guy. Was there just like, oh, man, this this thing is for real. It's coming. Uh, this this life, is, life on tour has now changed. Or was, it, or was there anything like that? I don't remember a moment when I thought, okay, yeah, things have definitely changed now. I mean, you know, with Tiger, 
it all happened so quickly. Right. Um, you know, he comes on tour and, and I think he turned pro at the end of 96. Yep. Um, yeah. he, he, he won a couple of times that fall. And it's like, wow, this kid's really good. And then he shows up the masters and does what he does. And, and, uh, it's kind of like, okay. You know, at the time it's like, how am I going to beat this guy? And then if you think about it long enough, you're like, okay, I'm not going to beat him. Um, I may get him every once in a while, but I'm not going to beat this guy consistently. Cause this is a, you know, a, a once in a generational type of player. And now we're realizing, well, he might be the greatest to ever play. Right. Um, and so, uh, but it's so interesting and fascinating to me because he truly created this, uh, this generation of golfers now that he's playing against. Oh yeah. Um, they, they saw what he did, the way he drove the golf ball, uh, the, the work that he put in. Um, and you know, they really, they they all looked up to Tiger Woods growing up and, and now he's befriended quite a few of those guys in South Florida. Um, you know, plays practice rounds, practices, you know, when he's at home with those guys. Uh, and so it's pretty fascinating to watch him compete against the generation of golfers that he created and inspired. Well, the thing that I'm also fascinated by with that, just to piggyback of what you're just saying, is that all these guys looked up to him. And Tiger now is, like you said, befriending them. And I'm not entirely convinced that they all want to beat him as much as they want to be near him and be his buddy i'm sure they will never i'm sure they'll say it say the right things i want to beat him i want to take him down i know they've said that many times i can't wait for tiger to get out here i want a piece of tiger i don't know how much they want to beat him or if they just kind of want to be in the inner circle uh i think it's a combination of both because i it it sounds like there's there's a lot of shade thrown both directions um and i'm talking particularly about like Justin Thomas, Ricky yeah. Fowler, Tiger, Bryson. Like, I think they all give each other the needle pretty good. But, I mean, nobody has the the intensity, the ability to flip the switch uh, to, to really compete that Tiger Woods has. I mean, that's what's made him so great. Obviously, the talent, but but to be able to, to do it so often. And I think uh, – you know, as we've seen when, when he's healthy, when he feels good, um, and we haven't seen it this year yet, but, but I think back to, to Australia and the president's cup, he was so good. Yeah. Um, you know, and he had a lot going on thinking about him being the captain as well. Um, but physically he looked so good and strong then. Uh, I just, I hope we get to see that version of Tiger Woods, uh, more often. And I kind of hope you know, when we get to the masters in November, I'm hoping that it's a little warmer oh, yeah. than, than it normally is in, in November in Augusta, Georgia. Um, because I feel like the warmer it is, the, the better chance he has to, to, uh, you know, to feel well physically. Yeah. I hope I'm completely wrong, but I have a feeling that there's a good chance that that 2019 masters is going to be looked at in the same way as the 86 masters. And perhaps it could be the last one that he wins. Hope I'm wrong. I'm, I, I hope he gets to 17 because any masters or any major that he plays after 17 is just going to be incredible. Cause you're just, you're watching him try and tie Nicholas. Um, yeah, it, it's, I hope it's warm. Um, yeah, I just we're just gonna need to wait and see. A lot of a lot about golf right now. We're just gonna have to wait and see. Um, later in 1997, you pick up your major championship victory, the Open Championship at Troon, and uh, you had your caddy there, Bob Reifke. And I was just curious, you know, anytime we hear of golfers coming out of the state of Texas, the natural correlation with them being great wind players or using the ground effectively to navigate golf courses. The correlation is always there. You're playing well that year. You know, as I said, top 10 in the Masters. Can you talk about how you prepared for this Open Championship? So I went over in 95 and 96 to qualify for the Open. Uh, 90, I made it through both times, uh, but back then the qualifier was on Sunday and Monday before the event started on Thursday. And so... You get over. I would get over there on Thursday, um, play a couple practice rounds, try and get acclimated and everything. 
you know, then you go through the qualifier and then you only get two practice rounds, Tuesday and Wednesday before the opens begins. And so 97 was the first year that I was exempt. Uh, so I got over there early. I got in on like Sunday morning, I believe. Um, and just kind of immediately fell in love with, with the golf course. Um, I played, let's see, I played 18 holes every day starting Sunday. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And on Monday and Tuesday, I went back out and played another four or five holes. I think I played 80 holes in practice that week. Now, I didn't go to the driving range because it was pretty windy and the direction wasn't great. I just spent all my time on the golf course. Interesting. And and um, my caddy at the time, Bob Reifke, I, I kind of told him at the beginning of the week, I said, let's you know, exempt. Let's really get to know this golf course um, because this is one that I, I really feel comfortable on. And, and so um, that was our game plan going into the week was playing a lot of holes, spending a lot of time on the golf course. And uh, and then it, Thursday was the weather wasn't great. It was blowing really hard on the way in, which, you know, Troon is, is more of a true links where you play out one direction, you come back in. And so it was into the wind. And, and um, I think I had 10 or 11 putts on the back nine. I hardly hit a green, uh, but I was getting it up and down and, and, uh, and really just shot a, a pretty decent score. And then the weather got nice and, and I was able to play more aggressively and, and, um, but yeah, Bob Reifke, my caddy then was, uh, really instrumental. He, he didn't complain about playing a lot of holes in practice. Um, I think he could sense my excitement and see my game. In fact, he placed a wager on me early in the week for, I don't know, it was three or 4,000 pounds. Oh. I think he made more from oh having me as the winning ticket than he did from me <laughs> actually paying him for, for, you know, for, for all the help that he, you know, that wow. he gave me. So, um, yeah, so he came out pretty good at the end of that week. Wow. That's a, that's a great story. Yeah. I did. Uh, I, I reason I was asking about him is I, I read, you know, there's a interesting article about him, how he basically, uh, went to school to be uh, for, you know, we got a college degree in marketing and then so it's like, yeah, yeah I want to, ch I want to chase the PGA tour. It almost feels like some, when I hear some of these caddy stories, I just talked to Billy Foster yesterday and just hearing some caddy stories, it's almost like, it's just as unlikely for a caddy to make it on the PGA Tour as a player, almost. Maybe even less. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting. You hear all these caddy stories. You're like, how did you even make that? Because you don't hit the shot. Right. No. Right. And, and it's, yeah, there, there's just a wide variety of, of, you know, guys that make it into caddying. A lot of time it's, and we're seeing now, a lot of the younger caddies are very good golfers. Oh, yeah. And, and maybe they just didn't quite make it professionally. I've also played, you know, casual rounds with a few caddies that horrendous golfers. I mean, Joe LaCava is not a good golfer, um, but he's an incredible caddy. Right. Um, and, you know, and then you've got guys like Mike Cowan or Fluff, who is a great golfer. Yeah. And you wouldn't know it by a swing, but but he's just, he gets it around the golf course and, and it's it's pretty fun to watch. And so... Um, but yeah, I've had, you know, guys like Bob Reifke, uh, you know, who, who got into it kind of as a, they maybe caddied, you know, growing up and got back into the game through a connection, a player or something, a friend, um, you know, others, Taylor Ford, same kind of thing, went to college. He played college golf, very good golfer in his own right. Um, and I, I believe it was one of his roommates that kind of asked him to caddy for him and and, you know, he enjoyed it and, and, you know, kept kind of moving up through the ranks, started out on the LPGA, um, you know, went through the corn Ferry tour and then I picked him up for a year. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to get where you need to go. It's not always, um, you know, it doesn't always happen the way you think it will. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, you know, we had Giles as your captain for Eisenhower trophy and, you know, you've played on three Ryder Cup teams, played on five President's Cup teams. We're obviously not going to go through each one. We'll hit on a couple of them if it's if that's all right with you. And But I'm looking at your captains, and just looking at President's Cup, it's your first first opportunity playing in a team environment in 96, and your, your captain's Arnold Palmer, 
Nicholas is your captain on three of the President's Cup teams. You have Texas guys at the Ryder Cup, Kite and Crenshaw. I, I, I can't even imagine what that's like. You're, you're, you're that young coming into this thing, and you have Arnold Palmer is running the team. Yeah, it, it was great. I mean, to, to be around he and, and Jack Nicholas in that capacity uh, and to be able to spend time around both of those guys um, was just it was an incredible experience and to be, I think I was 24 years old or something at the time. Um, I don't know if I said more than five words all week (laughs) to anyone, including my caddy. Um, I I was just, you know, very quiet. I just wanted to kind of take and soak things in and, and just do as I was told. And, and, um, so, but I look back on all those experiences and playing for those different guys. Um, you know, playing for Jack uh, was incredible. Um, I mean, I I played I played in the '93 Masters as an amateur, and Mr. Nicholas came over to me on their driving range on either Tuesday or Wednesday and said, "Hey, I'd like to play a practice round with you uh, at Baltusrol <laughs> at the U.S. Open on Tuesday." let's play at 10 AM. I'm like, yes, sir, Mr. Nicholas. And I look forward to it. And thank you. And, and well, that ended up being my 21st birthday. Um, so on my 21st birthday, I played a practice round at Baltus roll in the U S open with Jack Nicholas. Um, and so to be able to do those kind of things with, with, you know, true legends of the game, the guys that, that made the PGA tour made golf what it is today to be able to, to spend time around those guys uh, was incredible. And then to play for Tom Kite in 97 and then Ben Crenshaw in 99, both went to UT. I spent a lot of time with, with both of them when I was in college. Um, and, and they're so different in their personalities, sure. how they approach things. Um, it was really two very contrasting experiences, 97, 99. Um, and um you know, just uh, some great experiences. And then you get to play for, for Fred Couples and President's Cup and, and Paul Azinger in the in 2008 Ryder Cup. Um, yeah, I take a lot from those experiences and remember how those captains handled certain situations. And I just look back on them with, with complete fondness. You played 97 Ryder Cup at Valderrama. Like you said, Kite was your captain. And, and you actually... Um... You actually partnered up with Tiger in the set in the Saturday afternoon session, and you know he's had I think about twelve different partners in the Ryder Cup. His his Ryder Cup record isn't the greatest, and I think there have been several comments about you know, well, how do you find a partner to play with Tiger? That's kind of been a, I mean, it's he's had twelve different partners. What was your experience playing with him? I know you have the match that you played. I think it was with Ignacio Garrido and. Oh, I think it's Olathabel. I think that's who it was. Um, and, but you have the match. But I mean, this is obviously it's looking back on one experience. But can you maybe see things that would make it difficult to play with Tiger, or is it just things happen in different match play environments, and it is what it is? Well, I, I had played some tournaments with Tiger. It was funny because we didn't play any practice rounds together. It was a complete surprise. Oh, uh, it, at least to me, that's fun. Uh, I, I think I, I was playing, I can't remember. I was playing with either. It was either Jeff Maggart or Brad Faxon on Saturday morning. And, um, Tom came up, found me somewhere late in the round and said, Hey, I'm going to pair you with Tiger this afternoon. I was like, okay, great. Uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know what kind of golf ball he used. I, I didn't know much of anything. Uh, and so, um, you know, you, you go in, finish your match, have a bite of lunch, you know, sit down with Tiger. Okay, what do you want to do? You know, do you want the odds of the evens? Because I think we were playing, pretty sure we were playing ultimate shot. That's why yep. I was, yeah, was thinking immediately about the golf ball. And um, he goes, well, we're playing my ball. I said, you know, okay. Um <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were all and, and, uh, it was fun. I mean, that atmosphere, um, playing a Ryder cup, especially playing, um, over there is just so cool. It's hard. It's not easy playing with tiger. I mean, a, the other team knows that, 
if they lose to Tiger, they probably should have lost because he was the best player in the game. Right. Uh, but if they win, they can give their team so much momentum. And yeah. so the other team tends to play more freely, more kind of wheels off uh, without the pressure. Then if you're Tiger's partner, you've got the pressure of, okay, we're supposed to win because I'm playing with Tiger, the right. best player in the game. Um, and you're playing against this team that's got nothing to lose. And, and so um, it's not easy. I mean, you know, he and Steve Stricker had some success. Yep. Um, I think he had met, did he met Kuchar play a little bit and have some success? Um, I think um, it might've been a president's cup. Yeah. I know that Dave, I know that him and Davis had some success, um, but, but I mean, he's had, partner i mean steve paid him and paid got along really well yeah. in 99 for some yeah. reason i mean yeah they did they did that was a funny matchup but uh it's just it's hard because as a player you're already feeling pressure and then you know you've got to uh, you know you're supposed to win the match because you're playing with tiger woods you're yeah. playing against a team that's got nothing to lose like it's you know it's it's difficult and, and it's it's kind of no wonder his record isn't great in the Ryder cup because you know, A, it takes away his ability over 72 holes to wear the field down. Right. Um, and B, he's playing against guys like they got nothing to lose. Some, some of his losses, I, I was just looking at his record. They're just, you know, he, he lost a, he lost a Roca, I think, in that Ryder Cup, four and two in singles. I'm like, how, right. I'm like, how the hell did that happen? But it did. Uh, yeah, no, it's. It's just an interesting thing how you just look at uh, – I can't imagine what those galleries are like. And, yeah, they're, I don't think the media is going to spin it away of saying, boy, you know, Leonard really carried the team, just wish Tiger would have <laughs> helped out. And, yeah, they're not going to say that. They're, I mean, come on. So you're probably – if people are looking at your your career and your achievements, and I'll ask you about this because it's it's – there's a trivia question that, that I looked up and – there are four players in history that have won an NCAA individual championship, a U.S. amateur, played on a Walker Cup, won a major, won a players, and played on a Ryder Cup team. There's four people that have done that. It's Tiger, Phil, Jack, and Justin Leonard. And I brought that to your attention. You were, please tell me you're aware of that. I didn't break some news to you, did I? No, I, I had no idea of that. Um, and that's, you know... I, it's an honor to be to accomplish something that those guys have. And I think for me, I played so well early in my career. And if I look back, you know, the peak of my career was 97 to like Oh two, Oh three. Yeah. Um, you know, very early on um, really before, like we were talking about earlier, the, the um, uh, you know, the golf ball changed and length became, you know, much more of an advantage and guys really started, king on hitting the ball further um but it was just i look back with with a lot of fondness early in my career my amateur career uh back in the fall or actually no it was uh january um i, I got inducted in the southern golf association hall of fame i went to flew to charleston to one of their their annual meetings and and saw a lot of faces there that I remember from, you know, my amateur days playing Southern amateurs and, and those kind of things. And, and, uh, it's fun to be able to look back. I don't do it very often, but when I do, I have a lot of fun and, and, um, you know, just fortunate to have played so well early on in my career. Well, you had a, you had a great career. Then when you look at, you know, I, I think about the putt you made at Brookline in 99. That's when, I mean, everyone knows knows that they they can vision that in their in their mind, just thinking about the the putt, and then just obviously the reaction of the team. And I mean, that's embedded. But you have all these great accomplishments. And I'm looking, I'm thinking about other players that, you know, like I think about Hal Sutton, where at, with people think about Hal Sutton, they think about you know, be the right club today when he beat Tiger in the uh, at the Players, or you know, his captaincy in '04, or, or even Tony Jacklin, where really he's the only you know, only European player to win the U S open, like a 85 year history. And Jacqueline's known for the, for the concession with Nicholas at, mm -hmm. at Burkdale 69 and all these back and forth things. And, you know, not to, you know, bring up, you know, bad stats, but you actually didn't win a match in the Ryder cup until 2008. And they're remembering your 99 as, as a Ryder cup hero. I mean, do you ever think back to the to maybe if I just won a couple matches and that putt never went down, but we still won the Ryder cup, 
maybe the, the perspective of my career would be more in totality and not just on this one putt I made at Brookline in, on 17. Because I'm, I'm guessing you hear about that still to this day. I, I do. I, I hear, well, not so much in the last five weeks, but <laughs> well, um, I mean, yeah. b- before the shelter in place, at least once a week, I would hear wow. uh, from somebody who was there. Um, I, I think I've met all 83,000 people that were around that green, which okay. there's no way there were that many people, <laughs> but there, I, I feel like I've met every person that was there that day at Brookline. And, and I, I the only thing I would have changed um, about the way it all happened was, um, you know, I, I wish I would have gone straight to the team to where not everybody came across the green. Right. Um, that's the only thing that, and, uh, on 18 green, I should have given, uh, Jose Maria the putt. I, I had about a 30 footer. He had a 25 footer. Um, I, I should have just picked mine up and said, yours is good and given him the hole. Cause we'd already won. I was one up playing 18. Right. Uh, and so we'd already won the cup. I, I didn't give it to him. He made it anyways, but I just wish I would have given him that putt. Um, but going back, I, I remember an 08, and I knew that I had not, I had not won a match. I'd tied a few, yeah. I tied a few important matches, but I'd never won a full point in a match. And, um, I remember I was playing, that was the year of the whole pod system that Paul Azinger put together. And sure. so it was Phil Mickelson, Anthony Kim, myself, and Phil wanted to play with, with Anthony. And so we basically, Paul said, who do you want to pick to fill out your pod? Uh, and so I knew that we were picking my partner and Phil and I both said Hunter Mahan. And so, um, we picked Hunter, Hunter and I played together. Uh, we won, um, I think we were like, I think we won two matches and tied the other, um, something like that. We played well all week. Um, but, but yes, I do remember the kind of the pressure and, you know, thinking back after 99, yeah, I, I played the Ryder cup in 97, 99. I played a couple president's cups. Like I thought, man, this Ryder Cup, this is going to be my gig here for the next 10 years. Okay. Um, then all of a sudden, I don't make a team for a while. So I got to 2008 with a whole nother appreciation for being there. And, you know, rather than, you know, all serious and everything like I usually am, like I was at that point in time, 2008, you couldn't wipe the smile off my face. Yeah. I was just there. I was going to enjoy it. I was going to play loose and have fun and play with Hunter and, and sure enough, that we did, and it worked out great. That was a really impressive day you had there, where you beat Stenson and Casey three and two, and then you beat Polter, uh, then you beat uh, Garcia and Jimenez in the afternoon. So yeah, that that had to be absolutely just a really nice cap point to the the team aspect of your career. Where, um, but yeah, I just I keep coming back to the fact that like that's something that you're dealing with all the time as as with that putt, and then all the backlash and all the aftermath of that thing where. Just you've been you've been in so many different niches in in your career that have been memorable, and uh, for people to pick that one, it's uh, I don't know. I guess that's just that's the way golf is. It's the way golf is, and it's it's something. And if you if you as a player, if you do something important like that in the Ryder Cup, because everybody's pulling for you, right? It over at the Open uh, when I went over there, I mean, yeah, I'm sure there were a few Americans pulling for me, but I'm also playing in the same group of Fred couples that day. Right. They're pulling for him way more than they were for me. Um, you know, yes, for part of it, Darren Clark, were in the last group, think back to the players and, and, you know, but, but you do something like that in a Ryder cup or a president's cup, uh, when you've got an entire country or a region in the sense of the European team, uh, that are really pulling together, um, it can have a, a much greater impact on your career as it did mine than just an individual achievement. When Crenshaw made the prediction uh, Saturday um, and the, in the press conference that you know he's a big believer in fate, he's got a good feeling about this. When you guys learned about that, um, what was what was maybe your initial reaction hearing that from him? Was it, we're going to do this, or was it just like, eh, I don't know? I mean, what, what were your kind of thoughts after you heard that? Well, I, I was I was back at the hotel with uh, with Davis Love. I think it was at the hotel. Is it the hotel at the golf course? I think it was at the hotel. And 
when he said that, I looked at Davis and we both thought, okay, he's completely lost it now. <laughs> um, you know, because I mean, I've got a good feeling about this. We were down by four points. Yeah. Um, and then the next morning, you know, I was in the, I don't know, ninth or 10th singles match. And, and, and we talked about the night before Ben put the pairings in that we needed to build some momentum. So we put the guys who were really playing well out in front. You know, David Duvall, Davis, Phil, Tom Lehman, Hal Sutton, Tiger. Put those guys out first to try and get some momentum, create a little bit of doubt amongst the Europeans. And um, so Phil was playing maybe an hour before I teed off. So I'm sitting there eating breakfast in the clubhouse. And Phil sits down and uh, I kind of look down on my watch. I'm realizing, okay, he's going to tee off in like 40 minutes and few more minutes goes by he's not really saying much i said phil are you gonna um you gonna go warm up before your match you're gonna go straight to the tee he said i'm not going out there until i know we can win and he kind of put his head back down didn't say anything else waited about 30 seconds and then he didn't say good luck he didn't say anything he just got up and left and i was like wow okay so that's where we are and and uh it really kind of set a tone for the whole day those guys got off to a great start and and, um, you know, it just, it built into this, um, this moment that happened that I was fortunate enough to be a part of. Yeah. That was, uh, that was, that's, that's a really, really good Phil story. He's a different dude. Uh, he seems to be a little bit of a different dude. You mentioned about you wanting to concede, uh, your, your putt to, uh, to, to Jose Muriel Fable. Uh, Payne Stewart did, uh, give hit, give Colin Montgomery that putt on 18 that truthfully didn't really mean anything at that time that have the match. And then, you know, less than a month later, uh, you know, Payne Stewart's gone. Um, I can only imagine what kind of a Ryder Cup captain he would have been. He, he would have been phenomenal. I mean, you know, he would show up in the morning at the hotel or, or after dinner and have these, you know, USA flag kind of karate pant looking things on and, <laughs> and you know, Blair and Bourne in the USA. And, I mean, just a couple months before the Ryder Cup, when we were you know, both solidly on the team, um, my phone would ring and it'd be pain. And he'd say, what are you doing today to get ready for Brookline? Wow. Um, this is two months out. This isn't the week before. This is two months out. Um, and so he just brought a passion to it um, that it, it was phenomenal. And um, uh, he would have been uh, – he would have been an amazing captain, no doubt. I would have loved to see like him against. Gosh, I wonder who who he would captain against. I mean, obviously you can look down the chain, the different chain, but I'm just thinking on that on the European side. I mean, I'm guessing. I don't know. I mean, maybe he would have been there in 08. Right. Faldo. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you think he and Zinger were such good friends? Yeah. Um, yeah, he would have been right in there for sure. Yeah. Um, you've made the transition to TV for, for, you know, for a multitude of reasons. And there's this new wave of on-air talent that's coming to golf, whether it's, you know, Shane Bacon at Fox, or I know that CBS grabbed Colton Ost and, you know, yourself and Michelle Wee and Christy Kerr. And what are maybe some of the things that you, you know, want to bring to, uh, to television? How do you want to cover the game that perhaps is different than how you've seen it covered throughout your career? You know, are there different things that are really important to you or that you're passionate about that you want to provide to the to the viewer or the listener? My goal is to find a balance between um, the technical aspect of being able to to look at a golf swing and understand what's going on, um, which has been, a, you know, a pretty big learning curve for me, because for for 43 years, I was just worried about one golf swing, which was my own. Yeah. Uh, and now over the last four year, four to five years, um, trying to understand people's golf swings and, and what to look for, um, balancing that with what is it like to try and make a cut on a Friday afternoon or to finish off a, a 61 or a 62 or bounce back from missing three cuts in a row and now being in contention, trying to win your first tournament, trying to, you know, those kind of things trying to to let our audience in on the likely mindset you never know exactly what a player is thinking um, but the likely mindset of 
of a player and knowing the players and their personalities is important. And I think that's where, you know, the fact now I know it's been four years since I played, um, but I still know a lot of the guys and, and even the younger guys, because like I mentioned earlier, they're so forthcoming with information with yeah. what's going on and those kind of things, but being able to, to balance those two and provide a sense of entertainment. I mean, they're, we're playing golf. It's not, you know, it's not brain surgery. It's important. Um, But in the end of the day, trying to provide entertainment with some information that, you know, and hopefully when we finish a week where a player's been in contention all week, um, our, our audience, especially if it's kind of a maybe a lesser known player, that our audience has a new respect for, you know, for somebody's talent level or what they've been through in their life. You know, a lot of times Thursday, Friday, we can kind of get into more storytelling, more about what they've gone through, um, you know, growing up or things like that. Um, You get to Saturday and Sunday and it really kind of, you know, your focus really narrows into the golf side of things. But hopefully at the end of the week, people can say, you know what, I really learned a lot about that guy and I'm, I'm now a fan of his, that kind of thing. And, you know, again, it's the goal is to be entertaining. Um, I think it's important to bring some information along the way to, you know, those serious hardcore golfers. Um, you know, you need to speak to a pretty wide audience. And, and I just I enjoy that whole process. And I think I feel like I learn something every week that I work um, from either something wrong that I did that I don't want to repeat okay. or something that I take something that, you know, somebody I really admire does well, like a, you know, Terry Gannon or, or working with, uh, Phil Blackmar. Um, you know, there's the obvious, you know, Dan Hicks and Mike Tirico and Gary Koch's been a great mentor of mine. And of course I get to spend some time with Paul Azinger. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's those other guys when I'm working a tournament, uh, maybe it's just with the golf channel crew, um, that I go, wow, you know, Matt Google's got a great way of, of, of saying, you know, X and Y and in those kind of things. So I, I really feel like I still, you know, every week that I work, um, that I learn something new and, and that's, you know, I think that's one of the reasons I'm so attracted to, to doing the TV work. It kind of replaces that, uh, that itch that I had with the game of golf in that for me, it was more about the process and putting right. in the work and trying to find ways to get better here and there. And, and I'm able to now kind of feed that through my work in TV and, and, and broadcasting. Yeah. And I, I actually, I like seeing how there's the dynamic between you and Duvall and you have so much history together uh, from your playing days, whether it's on the amateur side or both open champions so I think that's just a, a unique tie-in where you can throw in stories that you both experienced together. Um, yeah, I think I think it's great, and I could totally see what you're saying about you being a uh, very meticulous person and being a a I don't want to say grinder in a but just you're very very yeah. de- very dedicated to your craft. So I think it's a it sounds like it's the perfect fit. Yeah, and it's it's been fun. I mean, I got the call back in January from golf channel asking if I would, um, they wanted to put me on the primetime show and I, you know, Frank Nabilo left to go be with CBS full time. Um, I've worked with Brando a couple times. Um, David, same way, a couple times, a couple of telecasts and then a couple of live froms. Um, but to be a part of that, you know, that primetime team was, it's, it was a lot of fun. I only got to do it for four days. Um, starting Monday at the players, uh, you know, Thursday, March 12th, you know, sports changed forever. And, and I was on the telecast with, uh, with golf channel. I was doing holes as a hole announcer for the first half of the show. So I was kind of just in all golf mode there for about four or five hours. I got back to the TV compound to get ready for our night show and the whole sporting world had changed. I mean, events are being canceled. NBA season postponed. And, and so, um, you know, it was an interesting shift there from, uh, you know, the first three days where we're analyzing swings and players chances. And, you know, Thursday, we're going to be talking about 
you know, going through highlights and, and, you know, those kind of things and setting up the next day to all of a sudden we're talking about, you know, social distancing and moral responsibility yeah. and, and, you know, the coronavirus. And, and it was, um, uh, it was, it was a crazy, like 18 hours there, uh, for the world of sports. And I was, you know, it was kind of right in the middle of it. I felt like I went from being on golf channel to being on, you know, MSNBC or something like that. Right. It's like, I, I was speaking way above my pay grade, um, <laughs> there between Thursday night. And, you know, we had to go back to the set uh, to do a live shot at 11 o'clock because Jay Monahan at, I don't know, just before 10 o'clock PM had decided to cancel the rest of the players. Uh, and then we went back again Friday morning to kind of handle that news. And then there was news uh, coming out from Masters that they were going to postpone their event. And so um, it was just, it was a crazy, like, you know, 18 hours there where the whole landscape of sports changed. I, I can't believe that we've been dealing with this for, for a month. It feels like it's been just like three months or four months. It just feels like it was forever ago. You know, Justin, I, I appreciate the time. I know we could have hit on several other things because uh, you, you, you've accomplished so much in your career, and I think it's fantastic that you found this new uh, this new avenue that you're going to uh, um, you're going to chase after and boy we didn't even talk about champions tour we'll do that at some other time we, we can talk about that some other time but i uh stay safe up there in the mountains enjoy the snow and uh, i appreciate you stopping by the back of the range thank you for having me on and yeah we'll, we'll just have to do it again so we can get to some other things and there you have it special thanks to justin leonard for joining me on this episode of the back of the range golf podcast don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Every single episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. Check the show notes for the link to Justin's company, Tiny Tweaks. We will see you again next time for another episode here at the Back of the Range.